Hi, this is David from Gaithersburg in the great progressive state of Maryland. I like to say hi to my wife first. Hi, Gail. But this program is made possible by supporters just like me, and you should act before the end of the month to support the progressive media community by joining the big fundraiser currently running at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with today's clips from On the Media, The Jimmy Dore Show, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, Moyers and Company, and the Tom Hartman Program. And you know the Mark Twain quote about history rhyming rather than repeating? Well, I don't either, but I'm sure just the same that it makes the Middle East one hell of a tongue twister. I am glad that we got our guy back. However, I do not feel it is right that we subject ourselves to these acts of terrorism. I do agree with our guy being back, but however, I do not think we should subject ourselves. Miss Louisiana, in her confusion, is nevertheless more consistent than many of the more practiced critics now outraged that five Taliban commanders in Guantanamo have been swapped for U.S. POW Bo Bergdahl. The Pew Research Center has found that public reactions to the Bergdahl case are deeply partisan. Fully 71% of Republicans think that the prisoner exchange was the wrong thing to do, while just 16% say it was right. Democrats, by more than 2 to 1, 55% to 24, have a positive opinion of the deal. And why wouldn't you form an instant, uninformed opinion? After all, Jesus said, buy their fruits, you will know them. Why not buy their beards? He says he was growing his beard because his son was in captivity. Well, your son's out now. Right. So if you really don't lo- no longer want to look like a member of the Taliban, you don't have to look like a member of the Taliban. Are you out of razors? Well, you know, Mr. Bergdahl's beard is not a tribute to ZZ Top. It's just sad. And that offended me, and it offended Every soldier, I'm sure. My job is to be honest and to and mm-hmm. analyze honestly. The man shows up at the White House looking like a Muslim. He speaks Pashto. He thanks Allah. But if television has been potent in swaying the public's view, it's not just because of its fixation with apparently scary hair, but because reporters are obliged to quote elected officials who can collectively change their positions on a dime. In Bergdahl's case, that dime was dropped, according to the Sunlight Foundation's PolitiWoops website, somewhere between June 2nd and June 4th, when mostly Republican politicians started deleting celebratory tweets about Bergdahl's release. Senator John McCain, who had earlier said that we should, quote, seriously consider a prisoner exchange, depending on the details, condemned this trade. And New Hampshire Senator Kelly Ayotte, who said this just before the trade. We also keep Sergeant Bo Bergdahl in our thoughts and prayers and will continue to do everything we can to find him and to bring him safely home. On June 2nd, called for a hearing to investigate it. Now let me pause for a moment and note that President Obama brought a lot of this upon himself. Lindsey Graham. Well, we'll have to push them open later on. We're going to have a closed-door meeting where we'll learn almost nothing, as we usually do. We'll learn more from Fox News than we learn from this meeting. Right. But in fact, the president didn't give Congress its mandated notice before taking action. That may be because in this Congress, there can be no compromise that enables action. Action on anything, according to the Pew Research Center, is at historic lows. 
but that's no excuse to evade the checks and balances of the system. While legislators hammered away at the president to do something about Bergdahl during his five years of imprisonment, the president could have conformed to the law, brought them this plan, and likely watched it fail. That's American politics in the third millennium. Meanwhile, Bergdahl's Benghazification is now well underway. Lindsey Graham again. This is a very bad deal for America. And this is the same president who embraces never leaving anybody behind, but never picked up the phone during the night of the Benghazi attack to call for help in Libya. and was virtually AWOL. And so apparently is Bergdahl's swift boatification. He's not a hero. He's a traitor. He's a deserter. He's no crown jewel. Yeah, yeah. And he was a ballerina when he was a kid. At least six soldiers may have died while searching for Bergdahl. The first two clips are matters of opinion. Bergdahl's writings at the time he walked off base suggest that he was deeply disturbed. That last assertion is as yet an unfounded charge. According to recent reporting in the New York Times, it's probably untrue. But it doesn't really matter. This argument is not about those five Taliban commanders, the exchange of whom reportedly had been discussed for years to further the peace process. And it's not about a troubled man whose past history with the Coast Guard should have prevented his induction into the army and who spent much of the last five years locked in a cage. This is an argument about Obama and the Democrats. Bergdahl is, if you will, just a political beard. You know, if I'd have been president, I would have gotten Bergdahl back for some second stringer like Abdal Rahim on the Shiri and whatever's in my pocket. Looks like a dollar seventy-five. A dollar seventy-five, and I'll no, 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 no. That is still way too much. If I was president, I would have gotten Bergdahl back for an eight-gig iPhone three and a pack of gum. So talking about the uh, Bo Bergdahl, Bo Bergdahl, Bo Bergdahl, the uh, POW who was uh, swapped out for five Taliban people. Now, the thing that got me is that people started smearing him, saying he's a traitor and his dad is a bad guy and what's wrong and why he's a bad. You know, uh, to me, that's we haven't even heard his story yet. The well, here, here's how Shep Smith puts it. Here's how Shep Smith puts it. If you desert or commit treason. You have to be proved to have done so. Absolutely. We can't just decide because some people come on television and yakety yak and we get a report of this and a report of that that that's what happened. As the army said, as the Pentagon said, you bring them home. You bring them home first and then you investigate. One thing is he's missing. You fix that. The other thing is there are allegations that he deserted or did anything inappropriate. Then you investigate that and let the chips fall where they may. It ain't a soup. <laughs> there is a Fox producer off camera furiously going, he's gone rogue, he's off the reservation. So what he just said there is, uh, is true. That I, I don't understand how people who consider themselves Americans will allow themselves to publicly smear and cat and pronounce guilty a, guy, a, a soldier who was five years captive without a trial. 
without knowing his mental health status, without knowing what was, was he bipolar? Was he schizophrenic? Was it worse? Did he have did he have a mental breakdown at war? At war? I flew over to Afghanistan to tell jokes. I had a mental breakdown over there, and I was just there to tell jokes. Okay, I don't know how anybody gets through being over there. All right, so the the fact that the guy snapped or whatever happened maybe he snapped maybe he did it we don't know what happened and i'm saying it's wrong to smear this guy until he you, you bring him home which is the proper right. thing to do according to uh even mccrystal says to bring here's here's what uh, general mccrystal said about it here's here's mccrystal well we don't leave americans behind that's unequivocal we don't leave americans behind that's unequivocal right Unequ that's general mccrystal so what does he say about uh, the circumstances and what, how is this how is this supposed to work? General McChrystal was the Allied commander in Afghanistan, who's right. a big hero to the right. And yeah. here's what he says. Sure. After Sergeant Bergdahl, then Private Bergdahl, came up missing, we did a huge number of operations to try to stop the Taliban from being able to move him across the border into Pakistan. And we, we made a great effort and put a lot of people at risk in doing that. But that's what you should do. That's what soldiers do for each other. So it wasn't it wasn't the wrong thing to do. So everybody keeps saying we lost six guys trying to find this guy who's a deserter. General McChrystal, the general, just said this is what you're supposed to do. We're do we would do this for him. We do this for anybody else. This is what you're supposed to do. Right. But apparently, here we go. I think we're going to have to wait and talk to Sergeant Bergdahl now and get his side of the story. One of the great things about America is we should not judge until we know the facts. And after we know the facts, then we should make a mature judgment on, on how we should handle it. Yeah. Okay. Unlike other people, every other person who's commented, uh, right. he thinks, no, we should comment and we shouldn't wait. And it's okay. What if you're wrong? You just smeared an American soldier. Well, I guess we'll take it back, but I don't think we're wrong, so smear him. It shows a lack of character. It shows, well, it just shows how craven half the political debate is in America. And that's not saying that I'm any fan of the Democrats. The, the Democrats are mostly bought and paid for by Wall Street and corporations, right? So we're, we're living in a banana republic right now where our representatives are not responsive to our electorate. They're only responsive to their donors. So they're, they're corrupt, but there's a half of the electorate that is literally untethered from reality and completely manufacturing every new scandal uh, on, on a monthly basis, right? You know, and it's be because great. Barack Obama and the Democrats have become Republicans. This is why. They've got no way to attack him. They would love to attack his single-payer health care plan, except he instituted their plan they would love to they would love to attack his real foreign policy except he's doing their foreign policy right he's killing bin laden he's bombing libya he ramped up the war in afghanistan he's he did a surge he's doing everything they want him to do and that's why they look that's why this is happening uh here is the former official the chief advisor to president bush here's what he had to say about it uh, but, you know, we can't keep them for another 50 years. Uh, and in particular, with the Afghanistan war winding down, we were going to have to return them uh, sooner or later. Not an easy choice here. Sure. Uh, uh, so he says we're going to have to return them sooner or later because the war is over. As a matter of fact, it's not sooner than later. There's a deadline. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically January 1st, 2015. Yeah, they have to be people, expatriated. And these people keep saying... They keep saying, I don't know if we should have let these five bad guys go. They were going to be let go anyway. And by the way, they're actually in a safer place right now. They're on parole in Qatar. Yes. Right now. And they'll be that way for a year. Yes. They, they actually are more monitored for an extra six months 
than they would have been yes. if they had just been straight right. out released. Right. So, but, but what about, would the Bush administration have done this? Uh, you know, I'm not saying this is uh, clearly uh, uh, an easy choice, but frankly, I think a Republican, uh, a, a uh, president of either party, Republican or Democratic, uh, confronted with this opportunity to get back uh, uh, Sergeant Bergdahl, who is apparently in failing health, uh, would have taken this opportunity to do this and then well, you know, take the same kind of heat that President Obama is taking now. I think we would have made the same decision in the Bush administration. There you go. So all this is completely phony, manufactured. We know it is. I like to think of Bo Bergdahl as reverse Jessica Lynch. That's how I look at her. Okay. So let's remember what Jeff Smith said. Let's remember one more time. If you desert or commit treason... You have to be proved to have done so. Absolutely. We can't just decide because some people come on television and yakety yak and we get a report of this and a report of that, that that's what happened. As the Army said, as the Pentagon said, you bring them home. You bring them home first and then you investigate. One thing is he's missing, you fix that. The other thing is there are allegations that he deserted or did anything inappropriate. Then you investigate that and let the chips fall where they may. It ain't a soup. Yes, these are dividing lines on how you handle this. So let's see, did the rest of Fox News take Shep Smith's advice or General McChrystal's advice or the senior advisor in the Bush administration's advice? Let's see if they listen to them or their craven political operatives <laughs> who told them to make a political hay out of this and smear a soldier and his family. Let's see what they did. Not only was he a deserter, Bergdahl not only a deserter, mm -hmm. it was well known that he was a deserter. Looks to me like a deserter or a traitor or, or both. How far did they go to get one anti-American back into the country and trade up for five anti-American killers? Why the Obama administration wow. would give away five terrorists to get him back. Yeah, he said, I'm ashamed to be an American. His father also wrote back to him an email quote, obey your conscience. That's three days before right. he left. And we're hearing from our sources now that he's also having trouble speaking English, not even sure if he knows how to speak English anymore. Wow. You mean five years away from speaking English and he doesn't know how to speak English anymore? I've what had, a shock. This guy, I, so what they're saying is this guy's a traitor. This yeah. guy's a traitor. Did you give him a trial yet? No. Did you hear from him yet? No. Is this the worst, lowest thing you could possibly do? Yeah, probably. Wow. Mm -hmm. That uh, is, will you have to pay a will you have to pay a price for this? No, <laughs> no, none of us will pay a price for this. The third narrative I want to quickly mention related to the Bo Bergdahl release prisoner swap with the five Gitmo detainees is the criticism that we're hearing that Bergdahl didn't deserve to be rescued because six to eight people died specifically looking for Bergdahl and that he was a deserter and we shouldn't have been looking for him in the first place. There's no evidence of that. In spite of the fact that that rumor started, and in spite of the fact that corporate media is now starting to parrot that six to eight different soldiers died specifically because they were looking for Bo Bergdahl, there is no actual evidence that that ever happened. The New York Times has a very interesting article which points out 
that if you actually review the casualty reports and the military logs from the Afghanistan war, it shows that the actual facts on the ground of these six to eight deaths supposedly attributable to Bo Bergdahl because he deserted and then people went looking for him are really quite murky. In some of these cases, there were deaths in an area where they had been told to be on the lookout for Bo Bergdahl, okay? And while doing patrols, which in part were connected with, let's be aware that this guy Bergdahl might be around, people died, soldiers died, and that's of course tragic. However, to suggest that those same soldiers who died, if it were not for the missing Bergdahl, would have been doing nothing at all, sitting in a completely safe, green zone, fortified type area, is ridiculous. And as has been made clear, if they weren't on the lookout for Bergdahl, they would have been doing patrols anyway, because that's what they do. And if you go through, Lewis, each and every one of these alleged deaths linked to Bo Bergdahl, there are no definitive details that really link him to those deaths in the way we're hearing from the corporate and conservative media. Right. I think the media kind of took this and ran because it was uh, nice and juicy, but uh, we don't really know the story. And you're right about soldiers. I mean, I think it's kind of uh, just par for the course that you're putting your life at risk when you go over there, when you enlist. Um, I don't like people coming up with these stories and circumstances in which it's okay for a soldier to get hurt and killed while over there, and it's okay in certain instances not to. Uh, it just well, think about another uh, example, Lewis. Where let's the example would be well, fine, but the, the, they wouldn't the have been killed. Well, yeah, the, the exception would be something like friendly fire or complete incompetence on behalf of uh, your fellow soldiers or superiors. And even in those cases, Lewis, so-called troop supporters are very quick to write that off as the casualties of war. And the reality is. You might go look for someone who is a little disillusioned with what's going on in Iraq and, or Afghanistan. That's just, that's just par for the course as well. And when we hear that, oh, we should look in this area because we might have an injured soldier there, and it turns out that it's an ambush, does the, does the, the, the person who made the decision to go into that area get blamed for any of those deaths? Or do we say, well, these things happen in war. The hypocrisy and double standard around this is just unbelievable. So yesterday we reported on the show that uh, the Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, uh, which is a terrorist group so extreme that Al-Qaeda has disowned them, uh, has taken over wide portions of Iraq, Mosul, gone, that's the second largest city in Iraq, Tikrit, gone, Fallujah, gone. Uh, actually, they're now uh, also uh, taking more and more cities. Uh, we told you about an, uh, the largest oil refinery in Iraq. Now, Iraqi officials claim they still have it. Uh, the rebels claim uh, that they're in control of it. But now they're emboldened and about to go a whole nother level. And in fact, 
as they accrue victories, they start to accrue allies. So it turns out it's not just them. Let me show you a list of the other people that are now involved in this fight on their side. You also got a group that I honestly had not heard of before, and I follow this stuff pretty closely. Army of the Men of the Naqshbandi Order. They have apparently joined the fight, and the Iraqi resistance group. Now, Izzat Ibrahim al-Duri is important. He's with the Naqshbandi Order, but he's also important because he was a deputy to Saddam Hussein. We have actually not been able to find him since 2003. He has reemerged as they take places like Saddam Hussein's former hometown, Tikrit. So now these guys are Sunnis. They're fighting against the Shiite government in Iraq, and certainly in, based in Baghdad. We can't really say all of Iraq anymore because they've taken huge portions of Iraq here. So Saddam Sunnis, they're back, but they're much worse than before. We came in there pretending there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq when there was none. Now, Al-Qaeda is not in Iraq. A group so radical, Al-Qaeda rejected them. That's who's in Iraq now. Brilliant move on our part to invade that country and stir up this hornet's nest. All right. Now, they uh, have made a statement, the Islamic uh, uh, State. They say, people, uh, you have tried secular regimes. This is now the era of the Islamic State. Okay, that sounds lovely. If you think that sounds bad, wait till you get a load of this. They say, the Islamic State issued a triumphalist statement declaring that it would start implementing its strict version of Sharia law in Mosul and other regions it had overrun. It said women should stay in their homes for modesty reasons, warned that it would cut off the hands of thieves, and told residents to attend daily prayers. It told Sunnis in the military and police to abandon their posts and repent or else face only death. Well, are they not merciful? You're only going to get death. Actually, in Iraq, it could be worse. So let me show you uh, the degree to which they have seized territory in Iraq. Look at this. Mosul's all the way up in the north. Tikrit is obviously far to the south of that, but then they have Fallujah, which is further south than that. So... That's a huge section of Iraq. And if you notice, Fallujah, not that far from Baghdad. Now, we're going to get back to that in a second because disaster is impending there. So, uh, first of all, let me tell you what they've captured in the areas that they have taken over. Uh, Associated Post reports, they said that ISIL, that's the short term for the group, fighters managed to take control of two big weapons depots holding some 400,000 items, including AK-47 rifles, rockets, and rocket-propelled grenades, artillery shells, and mortars. Not only do they win the territory, but they get all this booty. Uh, when they get in there, like, oh, the idiots ran and left all their weapons behind. But it gets worse. What else did they leave behind? U.S.-made weapons and armored Humvees, aircraft from the airport that it captured, freed all the detainees that they held in the Moses prisons, so now their forces are significantly larger because all those prisoners that were a part of their group and some that were not part of their group are now once again part of their group, so their group is substantially larger, and $400 million from the banks of Mosul. So now they have a ton of money to buy new weaponry. They now have an air force, and they have U.S.-made armored Humvees and other weaponry. Abandoning their posts and running from Mosul was a disaster for the Iraqi army. We'll get to why they did that in a second. By the way, those great uh, soldiers in the Iraqi army, 
didn't we train those guys? I thought we spent years and years training the Iraqi army. Both Bush and Obama declared a huge success. You know how much money we spent training the Iraqi army? $20 billion. Yeah, that seems like a really good investment. Okay, now, let me tell you what's happening on the ground. Let's go to The Guardian and how the battle uh, ensued in Mosul. Iraqi officials told The Guardian that two divisions of Iraqi soldiers, roughly 30,000 men, simply turned and ran in the face of the assault by an insurgent force of just 800 fighters. It's like out of uh, the movie 300. They're going to have to rename it 800. Okay. Now you're going to say, oh my God, that's the worst equipped army you've ever seen, and what cowards, etc. Of course there's truth in that, if you're looking at the numbers. But actually, it, it's not quite that simple. I'm going to tell you why they ran in a second. And it connects to why we should have never made it in Iraq in the first place. But let me give you more details first. The Iraqi army outnumbered ISIS, this is according to the box, by about 40 to 1 in Mosul. Yet the army still turned tail and ran. Ran so fast, in fact, as to leave some of their tanks and helicopters behind. Okay, and we showed you yesterday a picture. They literally stripped off their uniforms and left them on the side of the highway. I mean, what a disaster, right? So why? Why did they run? So, let's go to box. Despite the United States spending billions of dollars training the Iraqi army before the American withdrawal at the end of 2011, the Iraqi army is chronically unable to fight like a professional military. So one of the problems is that they're not professional. Now, but the real problem is that they're not professional because they're not motivated. That gets to point number two. Soldiers have been deserting in large numbers for some time. In Mosul, soldiers didn't run because they were doomed to defeat at the hands of a much smaller ISIS force. They ran because they didn't want to fight. Bingo, there it is. Now that's what we've been saying on the Young Turks for 12 years. Now there are Sunnis in the Iraqi army. They're not going to fight fellow Sunnis in Mosul. They're not going to do that because they care more about their particular sect than they do about Iraq. Iraq's an artificial country. It was drawn up by the British. They, they, <laughs> the Sunnis aren't going to fight fellow Sunnis. And then the Shia that's in the Iraqi army, they're like, Mosul? I don't live in Mosul. I mean, I got sent here. You come down to Karbala and we're going to have a fight. You come to Baghdad and we're going to have a bloodbath. But you can take Tikrit all day long. Sunnis live there. I don't give a damn about that. You come after those guys and all 30,000 will run because they don't care about those cities. Fallujah is a Sunni city. The Shias aren't going to fight for it. You can pay them all the money in the world. You can spend $20 billion training them. They're not going to fight. They ran from 800 guys and left everything behind. And those 800 guys, of course, now no longer 800 guys, much larger. Iraqi officials have already privately asked the U.S. to consider sending in drones to root out jihadists from the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, uh, who in a lightning offensive have seized the swath of the north. Now, it's just by the way, it's both called ISIS and ISIL, uh, depending on the source that you're looking at. But here, uh, the Iraqis are like, okay, panic button, panic button, uh, America, send in the drones! Yeah, that, that'll help a lot. Because when you turn the local population against the government even further by having them use the U.S. government to do drone strikes, which often kill civilians? No, that won't turn the local population at all. We had a whole war there. We stayed there for about a decade, and that didn't help at all. You think bringing Americans and military strikes again is going to fix the situation? You're not paying any attention at all. So, by the way, 
among the great things that we already gave the Iraqi government? Why don't you use this, guys? Why do you need our air power? We already gave you 24 Apache helicopters uh, to Baghdad in this January. 300 anti-tank Hellfire missiles, two of some of the 36 F-16 fighter aircraft that we gave them. So you've got plenty of weaponry. You've got your air force. Use them. Okay. Now, they might need them because it's not that they just lost a huge portion of the country. Turns out, the Islamic State is coming to Baghdad. The spokesperson says, we will march toward Baghdad because we have an account to settle there. Apparently, the Islamic State would like to send their regards. Now, the Shia are not going to fight in Sunni territory. But if you come to Baghdad, they're going to fight. And that's going to be much worse. And then the army, they just get paid. They don't give a damn. Those, see, in all these wars throughout history, you actually need people to give a damn if they're fighting. Otherwise, they'll run. They're not interested in losing their lives for a cause they don't believe in. Okay? But what's going to happen if they come to Baghdad and other Shia territory, and Baghdad is mixed, but uh, when you go further south from Baghdad, it's all Shia territory. Then we're going to get a revisit from Muqtada al-Sadr and the Mahdi army. Now, those guys are Shia. And they're going to say, oh, you want to come down to our place? Come and get some. Now, I hope to God that doesn't happen. Okay? Because if it does, you're going to see a civil war that's going to make Syria look like child's play. Okay? Now, we saw at the beginning of the civil war back in 2006. You remember when it was a disaster and we were in the middle of it? That was just warm up, man. If they go to Baghdad, oh, it's going to be horrible. Okay. Now, they explain that Middleton's also attacked an Iraqi security checkpoint in Tarmia. That's just 31 miles north of Baghdad, killing five troops and wounding nine, according to officials. They're about 30 miles from Baghdad. Okay, further disaster. Associated Press reports, the involvement of Saddam era figures raises the potential to escalate Middleton's campaign to establish an al-Qaeda-like enclave into a wider Sunni uprising that could only further the momentum toward turning Iraq's sectarian and ethnic divisions into geographical fragmentation. Now, so basically what they're saying is they're going to take the Sunni territory and they're going to say this is ours. But not just Sunni territory in Iraq, but also in Syria. They even have aspirations for Sunni territory in Lebanon and Jordan. If you thought Civil wars in these individual countries were bad. Wait till you have civil wars across the Middle East. Wait till you have a Sunni-Shia war that envelops the entire region. Okay, we're just getting... Oh, that invasion of Iraq, what a brilliant idea! Let's just stir that all up and let's get those old Sunni-Shia hatred going again. And we can start the biggest bloodbath anybody's ever seen. Okay, now, there is one possible solution that arises out of that quote, though which is, for God's sake, do what we told you. How many years ago? I have it on tape, which you're about to see, eight years ago. But I've been saying it for almost 12 years. Split up Iraq. Iraq was never meant to be. Give the Kurds their Kurdish territory in the north. Give the Sunnis the Sunni territory and the Shia the Shia territory. Split them up and do it immediately before the war gets wider. I mean, it's already in Syria. If it goes to Lebanon and Jordan, you're never going to be able to control it. There are natural enclaves there. Split it up already. Okay. But no, no, no. I was told, no, you don't understand. America America can keep Iraq together. It's going to be a success and it's going to be a democracy. How's that turning out? 
And now, to further buttress my point, listen to this. In the north, Kurdish security forces took over an air base and other posts abandoned by the Iraqi military and ethnically mixed Kirkuk, a senior official with the Kurdish forces, said he denied they had taken over the oil-rich city. In other words, oh, there you go, the Kurds are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in the north, we got a Peshmerga, and that, that's up to a quarter of a million soldiers that the Kurds have in northern Iraq. They're like, that Islamic State, the Sunnis, if they come here, we've got a way of dealing with them. Now, the Kurds, and the, I know it gets complicated, but the Kurds uh, are also Sunni, but they're Kurdish ethnically. The Sunni we're talking about are Arabs, okay? So the Kurds are saying, you're not coming in our territory. If you do, we're going to handle you. But now they don't need the southern half of Iraq at all. They already have oil-rich cities. Kiss them goodnight. Bye-bye. They're gone. The Kurds are gone. They're going to start their own state. It's only a matter of time. It's not if, it's when. Okay, so now, like I said, if only someone had said to do this eight years ago, how much bloodshed could we have saved? Watch this. There's no debate about it anymore. Before, we posed it as something that is l the likely answer, but we should consider it. We should have committees on it. Instead, we should have a discussion over it. No more discussion. You got to split up the Shiites and the Sunnis and the Kurds right away. You had to do it three months ago, six months ago, a year ago, but you have to do it right now. You got to split up the country. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. Now, look, I said that then because the other option was let them split it up naturally. The way you do it naturally is you fight until everyone is tired of dying. And then you go, okay, the Shia can't get the Sunni area, the Sunni can't get the Shia area, we'll split up the country. Okay. Now, I, I, in fact, in the later part of that discussion, uh, you'll see why I said we have to do it. And we're going to work with Iran, Syria, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, everybody else in the region to make sure to get that we get all the help we can in trying to control now what is now almost uncontrollable forces on the ground in Iraq. Because we need every Sunni to put pressure on the Sunnis in Iraq, and we need every Shiite in the world to put pressure on the Shiites in Iraq to make sure that they split up in a way that is not amicable, because it's not going to be amicable, but that does the least amount of damage, that is the lesser of all evils in Iraq. If we had done that back then, we would avoided countless amount of damage, countless American lives, countless Iraqi lives. But nope, 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 everybody's got ego and pride, and they say, no, we're going to keep Iraq together, because we drew that map after one of the wars, and then it's going to stay that way forever, when it makes no sense at all. People will organically go to what does make sense. They will, unfortunately in this case, go to their sex. Maybe we could have kept it together, we never invaded in the first place. But once you stirred up the hornet's nest, you were never going to put the hornets back in the nest. And in fact, now, security experts like Bruce Rydell say this. This is today. It's a point of how do we minimize our losses and live with what might be rapidly developing as a de facto partition of Iraq between a Sunni extremist state and a Shiite state. Look, this is not time for I told you so, etc. What I'm telling you is, the reason we knew this eight years ago, and the reason now the security experts are coming around to it, is because it makes sense. And if you try to stop things that make sense, all you're going to get is blood. By the way, the one other guy who should get credit here, a guy who could actually make a difference, unlike me, is Joe Biden, who suggested splitting up Iraq. And everybody's like, oh, Joe Biden, you're crazy, man. That doesn't make any sense. That's radical.
They're going to split themselves up anyway. The question is, how many lives are we going to lose in the process? I remember when the world said, give them hell. So it did, then our empire fell. We tried to bring peace by killing everyone who disagrees with us. Nobody wants to know it, so we never hear about the 34,000 who died last year. Who had nothing to do with this goddamn war. They said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that could turn the smoking gun into a mushroom cloud, and they were wrong. They said Iraq had ties to al-Qaeda, and they were wrong. They said the war would be a cakewalk, and they were wrong. Over and again, they were wrong. Yet 11 years, thousands of lives, millions of refugees, and trillions of dollars later, the very same armchair warriors in Washington who from the safety of their Beltway bunkers call for invading Baghdad are demanding once again that America plunge into the sectarian wars of the Middle East. A chorus of kindred voices fills the echo chamber. The same old faces, the same old arguments, never acknowledging the phony premises and fraudulent intelligence that led to disaster and chaos in the first place. A headline at the website Think Progress, sums it up. The people who broke Iraq have a lot of ideas about fixing it now. Among the most celebrated of these hawks is Robert Kagan, senior fellow with the Brookings Institution, a darling of the neocons. He's been a foreign policy advisor to John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Hillary Clinton. In 2002, he and William Crystal wrote that for the war on terrorism to succeed, Saddam Hussein must be removed. When George W. Bush set out to do just that, Kagan cheered him on, and then in 2006 called for a surge in American troop levels to prevent Iraq's collapse. Now, Robert Kagan is stirring controversy again with this lengthy article in the New Republic. Superpowers don't get to retire what our tired country still owes the world. He calls for America to return to muscular, global activism. Kagan's much-discussed article brought a sharp repost from another scholar and historian who sees the world and America's role differently. Andrew Basevich has seen the horrors of war too closely to advocate more of the same policies that failed in Vietnam and Iraq. A graduate of West Point with 23 years in the military, including time in Vietnam, he teaches history at Boston University, writes best-selling books on foreign policy, and articles and essays in journals, both liberal and conservative. Like this critique of Kagan in Commonweal Magazine, titled The Duplicity of the Ideologues. Welcome back. Thank you very much. So what do you mean, the duplicity of ideologues? Well, Kagan's essay, which does deserve to be read simply because of Kagan's stature in Washington, uh, gives us a, a falsified, sanitized, and in some respects illusory uh, account of recent American history. How so? Well, uh, his notion of American history, particularly since uh, 1945, uh, is one that we might term a, an extended liberation narrative uh, where the United States devoted itself in the wake of World War II to promoting liberal values, democracy everywhere, 
uh, fighting against evildoers, uh, and he concludes that uh, this success is being squandered by uh, Barack Obama uh, and, and those who are unwilling to continue this crusade. Now, that narrative is only sustainable if you leave a lot of important facts out or if you uh, distort those facts. So we get no mention of overthrowing Mossadegh uh, in Iran in 1953. We get no, no mention of the CIA overthrowing uh, the uh, president of Guatemala. Uh, we get virtually no mention of the Vietnam War, which he dismisses as sort of an unfortunate uh, incident of no particular significance. And, and perhaps most egregiously, he, he utterly ignores uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which he served as a cheerleader for, and which, to a very large extent, account for the problem that we're dealing with today in the greater Middle East. This week, one of his allies, former Vice President Dick Cheney, and his daughter Elizabeth wrote a long essay in the Wall Street Journal. They say, rarely has a U.S. president been so wrong about so much at the expense of so many, too many times to count. Mr. Obama has told us he is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as though wishing made it so. His rhetoric has now come crashing into reality. Watching the black-clad ISIS jihadists take territory once secured by American blood is final proof, if any were needed, that America's enemies are not decimated, they are emboldened and on the march. Well, I'd say rarely has a major American newspaper published an op-ed that was so thoroughly uh, shameless. Uh, again, uh, what is the cause? What, what was the catalyst of the instability that racks uh, Iraq today? The simple answer is the one that Cheney and his daughter uh, don't want to mention, the unnecessary, misguided, and frankly immoral war launched by the United States in 2003. We destabilized Iraq. In many respects, we destabilized the larger region. Uh, and uh, misfortune of Barack Obama is that he inherited this catastrophe created by the previous administration. Even Cheney once thought that it would be a serious mistake to occupy Baghdad. This is Dick Cheney in 1994 reflecting on the first Iraq war, uh, when he was Secretary of Defense under George H.W. Bush. Do you think that the U.S. or U.N. forces should have moved into Baghdad? No. Why not? Because if we'd gone to Baghdad, we would have been all alone. There wouldn't have been anybody else with us. It would have been a U.S. occupation of Iraq. None of the Arab forces that were willing to fight with us in Kuwait were willing to invade Iraq. Uh, once you got to Iraq and took it over and took down Saddam Hussein's government, then what are you going to put in its place? That's a very volatile part of the world, and, and if you take down the central government in Iraq, you can easily end up seeing pieces of Iraq fly off. Uh, part of it uh, the Syrians would like to have to the west. Uh, part of eastern Iraq uh, the Iranians would like to claim, fought over for eight years. In the north, you've got the Kurds, and if the Kurds spin loose and join with the Kurds in Turkey, then you've threatened the territorial integrity of Turkey. It's a, it's a quagmire. I think the, the contrast between what Cheney said in 1994 and what he says 20 years later is actually uh, very illustrative of what passes for foreign policy debate today is just nakedly partisan. Uh, back in 1994, he was in the business of defending George Herbert Walker Bush. Now he's in the business of defending George W. Bush, but basically uh, attacks Barack Obama 
blaming Obama for uh, any difficulties that we're having. And the point about naked partisanship, I think, really applies on a somewhat larger stage. When you look at the people who get invited on the Sunday talk shows or whose op-eds appear in the New York Times or in the Washington Post or other prominent organs of opinion, they are people who are participating in this partisan debate. There's very little effort to look beyond the Bush versus Obama, Republican versus Democrat, to try to understand the, the larger forces in play that have brought us to where we are today and the understanding of which could then make it possible for us to think somewhat more creatively about policy than simply having an argument about whether we should attack with drones or attack with manned aircraft. What are those larger forces at work? Because Robert Kagan says, quote, world order shows signs of cracking and perhaps even collapsing, and that these changes signal a transition into a different world order which the United States should attempt to lead. When Kagan uses phrases like world order, uh, he's describing something that never really existed except in his own imagination. But again, the point is worth reflecting on. Uh, Kagan believes... Many people in Washington believe that the United States shapes the global order, uh, that there is an order for which we alone are responsible. Where does this kind of thinking come from? I mean, I, I, think, I think in many respects what we see here is the contemporary expression of the whole notion of American exceptionalism, that, that, that we are chosen, we are called upon, called upon by God, called upon by providence, to somehow uh, transform the world and remake it in our own image. Now, Robert Kagan wouldn't state it as uh, bluntly as, as I just did, but that is the kind of thinking uh, that I think makes it very difficult for us to have a genuine and serious foreign policy uh, debate. So the other side would would argue, as they are, that we'll look at the beheadings, the murders, the, the brutality and cruelty that the uh, uh, radical Islamists are inflicting upon their adversaries and the people of Iraq. Isn't that an evil to which we are the only ones can respond? Well, first of all, it is an evil to which we contributed by our folly in invading Iraq back in 2003. There was no al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, under the previous order. Uh, that would be the first point. And then the, the second point, I think, would be let's be practical. Let's be pragmatic. If indeed we are called upon to act, let's, let us frame our actions in ways that actually will yield some positive outcome. I'm personally not persuaded that further military action in Iraq is actually going to produce an outcome more favorable than the last one. If what we have here on our hands in Iraq, in Syria, uh, elsewhere in, in the Middle East is a humanitarian catastrophe, then, then let us become serious about asking ourselves, what is the appropriate response? What, what can the richest and most powerful country in the world do to alleviate the suffering of innocent people who are caught up in this violence? And my answer to that question is not airstrikes. Uh, my answer to that question is, well, if indeed we have a moral responsibility to come to the aid of suffering Iraqis and Syrians, then we better start opening up our wallets to be far more generous and forthcoming 
in, in providing assistance that people need. What form would that assistance take, given the hostilities on the ground there and the murderous uh, internecine tribal sectarian conflicts going on there? How do we help people who are at this moment suffering as a consequence, as you have indicated earlier, of policies we pursued? People flee these conflict zones. They flee into neighboring countries where they end up in, in pretty squalid refugee camps, mostly run by the United Nations. Let's double, triple, quadruple the support that we provide to maintain those refugee camps, or let's go beyond that. Let us welcome at least some number of them to America where they will have safety and freedom. I mean, if we're serious about caring about the well-being of these people, that's one practical way to respond to their plight. So do we conclude from that that you don't believe there is anything practical we can do on the ground. Is the only option murderous genocide and optimum paralysis? We have been engaged in the Islamic world at least since 1980 in a military project based on the assumption that the adroit use of American hard power can somehow pacify or fix this part of the world. We can, we can now examine more than three decades of this effort. Let's, let's look at, at what U.S. military intervention in Iraq has achieved, in Afghanistan has achieved, in Somalia has achieved, in Lebanon has achieved, in Libya has achieved. We ask ourselves a very simple question. Is the region becoming more stable? Is it becoming more democratic? Are we alleviating, reducing the prevalence of anti-Americanism? I mean, if the answer is yes, then let's keep trying. But if the answer to those questions is no, then maybe it's time for us to recognize that this larger military project is failing and is not going to succeed simply by trying harder. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the events that are unfolding in Iraq at this very moment promote a debate within Washington revolving around the question, what should we do about Iraq? But there is a larger and more important question, and the larger and more important question has to do with the region as a whole and the actual consequences of U.S. military action over the past 30 years. Jamie says we don't have the stomach for the final fight. What the hell does that mean? You sick fuck, you should apologize. It's not an American to not want everyone to die. And what the hell is wrong with our society that we still think our right and right means that it's okay to kill. It's okay to kill if the reasons are good You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, no new war. 
For anyone over the age of 30, the rhetoric and coverage of the current unrest in Iraq has a terrifying deja vu. And for anyone over 40, it's a deja vu we've already experienced once before. Should the president decide to intervene, and frankly, it wouldn't be unprecedented for him to get involved without an order from Congress, it would be the third military action in the region in less than three decades. That's unconscionable. Millions of lives, trillions of dollars, families torn apart, crashed economies. We cannot fix what we've already broken, and we are listening to our elected officials describe scenarios where, quote, no option is off the table. It's time to hear what they're saying and respond. The first congressman to speak out was, unsurprisingly, Representative Alan Grayson. His new website, nonewwar.com, is built for the sole purpose of amplifying the war weariness of most Americans. We're supposed to take comfort that the president is sending in, quote, military advisors and not troops or combat soldiers. If that doesn't make you feel better, add your name to the thousands who have already done so. The language in the petition is short and simple. Frankly, it's all that should have to be said. Quote, U.S. military action in Iraq. It sure didn't work out well the last time. Let's not make that mistake again. Sign and stand with Representative Grayson. Then visit contactingthecongress.org to email, visit, call, and tweet at your congressmen and women. There's an election in less than five months, which means every single House member is weighing the best political options for holding on to their jobs. Let them know that not only would authorizing or condoning an increased military presence in Iraq cost them your vote, but to earn your support, you expect them to vocally stand against this and future wars. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage Every country thinks of themselves as exceptional, and every country is in their own way. And American exceptionalism, that phrase, has meant a lot of things over the years. I mean, we've used it in the past to justify bullying around the world. We've used it to justify invading countries like Iraq that were largely minding their own business. We've used it for noble purposes like ending slavery and enfranchising women. Exceptionalism has often led to bad behavior, as we saw in the years leading up to World War II. Yet in America, like in pretty much every other country, it's a political necessity to patriotically assert the uniqueness of one's country and love of one's country. This can be a healthy thing, unless it's used to assert both uniqueness and superiority. Then it turns toxic. There's a meaningful parallel here with tribalism and racism. To say, I'm of Turkish or Norwegian or African ancestry and proud of it is an entirely different thing from saying that one's ancestry makes one superior to other people and then to go out and assert that supposed superiority by doing things like perpetrating job or housing discrimination. Awareness or even pride are different from oppression or assertion of power over others. President Obama yesterday redefined, and this was, you know, in his speech, and I think it was largely ignored or missed by most Americans, he largely redefined American exceptionalism in a way that essentially recalibrated it away from the Bush definition. He said, 
I believe in American exceptionalism with every fiber of my being. But what makes us exceptional is not our ability to flout international norms and the rule of law. You, you will recall I editorially comment I hear in the middle of my Obama quote, uh, Bush was a master at ignoring international norms and the rule of law. Anyhow, back to Obama. It's our willingness to affirm them through our actions. That's why, President Obama said, I will continue to push to close Gitmo because American values and legal traditions don't permit the indefinite detention of people beyond our borders. He goes on to say, that's why we are putting in place new restrictions on how America collects and uses intelligence. Oh, he's replying to uh, Edward Snowden. <coughs> Excuse me. Because we will have fewer partners and be less effective if a perception takes hold that we are conducting surveillance against ordinary citizens. America does not simply stand for stability or the absence of conflict, no matter what the price we stand for the more lasting peace that can only come through opportunity and freedom for people everywhere. While most Americans probably didn't notice this nuanced shift in the president's definition of American exceptionalism, I think it's worth noting. You know, while politics demands that uh, he continue to use the word or the phrase, he's shifting its meaning to one that's more rational and more useful. Can you imagine what American exceptionalism might mean today if John McCain, for example, had been elected president? Iran would be a smoldering rubble. We'd have 100,000 troops in Syria and God knows where else. Saying that we're exceptional because we actually follow international law and advocate peace is to say that all countries can fit that definition and to set a good example for the world. Now, if President Obama would take it all away and follow the rule of international law to not kill civilians in foreign lands with drones, he might be actually taken more seriously. And if Republicans would get with the program and let the president use federal money to close Gitmo, we might begin to meet this new definition of exceptionalism that's actually a healthy and useful one. We might rejoin the family of nations around the world that actually embrace peace and the rule of law. Jay, this is Scott from Brooklyn. I just finished listening to episode 837, and I'd like to respond to the voicemail from Vicki from Oregon. I wasn't sure from her voicemail, but it sounded like she was referring to Alan Savory's TED Talk, How to Green the Desert and Reverse Climate Change. And that talk has been fairly widely discredited by people from Australian researchers Jeff Russell and Gerard Wedderburn Bishop to ecosystem scientists like Jason West and David Brisk for a number of reasons too long for this voicemail. The whole point of Savory's talk, like the point of the humane meat movement, is to get meat eaters to pat themselves on the back for continuing to consume animal products in the face of growing evidence that animal agriculture is destructive and unsustainable at any level. The global population is rising, and grazing is not a sustainable solution because there is no way to create the amount of space we would need for the world populations to continue eating animals. I mean, Vicky herself indicates that the methods only work on a small scale. In moving to a grazing model, those few animals we would be able to raise would be prohibitively expensive for most people. 
So meat will, as it was in the past, become food solely for the elite. And some of the resources, like water and land used for raising these animals, could be put to better use by raising plant foods for the entire population. To respond to the problem of desertification, we don't have a perfect solution yet, but veganic farming methods, crop rotation, and replanting native grasses and trees are a step in the right direction. Animal agriculture doesn't need to be improved, as changing the manner of exploitation doesn't make it no longer exploitative. But for the sake of the animals, the environment, and humankind, animal agriculture needs to be eliminated. Thanks for the podcast, Jay. Keep it up. Hey, Jay, it's Nathan from Boca Raton again. I want to respond to uh, Nathan from Vancouver about the marijuana is harmless argument. And I actually liked what he had to say. I thought, you know, he may, he does make, do a very good argument for that. And, you know, I'm a believer in, you know, you have a right to do anything you want as long as you don't violate another person's right to do whatever they want. Um, but when it comes to the marijuana is harmless argument, at least for me, it's meant as a comparison specifically to alcohol and tobacco and prescription drugs and other over-the-counter drugs that can be abused but that are perfectly legal. Um, like alcohol and tobacco are basically like serial killers, essentially. Like they kill how many tens or hundreds of thousands of people a year, and yet they're completely legal. While marijuana, which has no... which we've never documented a death directly caused by marijuana. That is, of course, marijuana in concert with other drugs, someone gets behind the car wheel of a car, issues with dealers, obviously, but when it comes to you can't overdose on pot. And that's the idea behind, at least as I understand it, behind marijuana is harmless. It's just saying that we have two drugs that are far from harmless, that are completely legal. Why is marijuana a drug that is a heck of a lot safer than tobacco and alcohol, basically harmless compared to tobacco and alcohol, illegal, while alcohol and tobacco, which are extremely harmful, legal. So that's, I think, the point of that argument, and that's it. So, thanks. Hey, Jay, it's Wayne. Scott, through listening to the uh, reparations episode, and a couple of problems immediately jumped to my mind. First off, the only people I heard talked about getting reparations were, were black Americans, specifically those that could trace their lineage back to uh, slavery or an ancestor back to who was enslaved. But the first problem I see coming up with reparations is that what prevents the women of America from getting together and saying, hey, you guys didn't let us vote until the 1920s. We deserve reparations for that. What prevents immigrants, Hispanics, Asians? You know, Asians can say, we we worked under virtual slave conditions to build your railroad. Where's our money? Uh, homosexuals could say the same thing. So unless you build some type of oppression meter, how are you going to fairly dole this out? And the second thing is, reparations piss people off. That's just the fact of the matter. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. But if you give every black person in America even a, a, a symbolic dollar check, that's going to turn a lot of anger toward the black community. Fairly or unfairly, that's not. we're just talking about reality here. That's what it's going to do. And hostilities can lead to violence. I don't think it's as simple as what some of the people were, were saying on your show. I don't think it's going to be this nice, easy process 
and for what purpose? To right an historical wrong? So we want to create modern-day or present-day violence and present-day strife to right an historic wrong seems a little short-sighted to me. So I just don't know. like to hear what you think, how this would work. What would it prove? And what would be the, any effect today? Would there be nothing but positive? Would there be some negative? I mean, I don't know. I'd like to hear what you have to say on that. So that's all I have, man. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I have a couple of responses to uh, Wade. He has a couple of problems with the idea of reparations, as we just heard. Uh, so the first was... You know, if we followed through on the idea of reparations for the descendants of slaves in America, then what's stopping other oppressed groups from pursuing a similar policy? And I, I heard that, and my first thought was to try to answer the question. You know, when you're asked a question, you try to answer it. But then I realized after thinking about it for a few minutes that it's much more interesting to just look at that question itself. What's stopping these other oppressed groups from pursuing a similar policy? And th- this was posed as like, one of the problems with reparations. And so I, I thought, well, first of all, in a basically democratic society, nothing is stopping anyone from pursuing any policy. That's kind of part of the point. So just because we haven't given reparations to descendants of slaves doesn't mean that women can't right now begin to pursue a policy of reparations for being prevented from uh, being allowed to vote. Like, they're, they're sort of disconnected from each other. Although I take his point that the other side of that coin is that this is precedent setting. If we were to follow through on reparations for slavery, well, then that sets a precedent. And it says that the U.S. government as a policy has tried to make amends by paying reparations for a horrible injustice of the past. So other people who have had horrible injustices Im- imposed on them might also think that the U.S. government would be willing to make amends for that. And this is posed as a bad thing. I, I can hardly wrap my mind around how how that's a problem. Like, yeah, anyone who's had something really terrible happen to them, why not try to uh, have the people who have wronged you make amends for that? Um, it's not necessarily going to work. You know, again, it's a democracy, so you'd have to make your case and get people to be on your side and sort of make a strong argument to to get people to agree with you. But yeah, like uh, anyway, I don't see how that's a problem. Uh, secondly, though, I think I think he's absolutely right that uh, if we were to pay out reparations today, there would be some uh, racial strife in America. Like it, it's a condemnation of our country that. That is undoubtedly true, um, but it, it sort of proves how much people don't understand the problem of racism in America. Uh, so during that reparations show, there the comparison was made between uh, you know reparations for slavery and the fact that Germany paid reparations to Israel and the Jews for the Holocaust. And it's a very imperfect comparison, but it's an interesting comparison. And I, so I got thinking, like, you know, Germany started paying reparations in the 50s. 
we're well beyond a hundred years past the end of slavery. How is it that we never got around to trying to make amends for that? But here's sort of the very, very basic difference, which is that Germany during, you know, the Nazi reign imposed these horrible murderous oppressions from the top down. Whereas the whole slave trade was imposed from the bottom up. You know, the government went along with what the people were very much in favor of doing at the time. And so, you know, when World War II ended, the Allied forces kind of swept through and, you know, many of them made average Germans, you know, not military Germans, just average Germans tour the concentration camps to show them what had been done in their name. And, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly, but like, I would say a majority, huge swaths at least of average Germans were appalled at what was going on and they, and they didn't know about it at the time. The Union and the Civil War couldn't do the same thing. Like <laughs> the Union soldiers could uh, sweep through the South and try to get average Southerners to look at what was being done in their name and they'd be like, yeah, that's right. That's my heritage and my way of life. <laughs> so it's a slightly different thing to try to get people to, you know, realize that what they've done is terrible. You know, average Germans, you know, I, I don't know that it was like a unanimous consensus to say like, holy shit, we need to make up for this. But, you know, almost the opposite was true of those who had their slaves taken away. They, they pretty much didn't think oh my goodness, thank you for showing us the error of our ways. Let us make amends. So anyways, you know, in America, we don't have that way of thinking. And still to this day, you can, you know, you don't have to look that hard to find people who think either, you know, slavery wasn't that bad, or at the very least, we certainly don't need to do anything to make up for it now. And so, you know, a conversation about reparations, sort of similar to the conversations we have about privilege. It's a way of rekindling that conversation and resetting the context for it. You know, lots of people think like, well, slavery ended 140 years ago, so what's the problem? But we have to keep talking about it to remind people that the oppression didn't end 140 years ago. It didn't even end 50 years ago. It hasn't ended to this day. And that's why it's important to keep the conversation going. Specifically to Wade's question, yeah, I, I think that it would cause problems to uh, to give reparations right at this moment. But I think it's a worthy goal to keep having this conversation in society until we drag people far enough over to our side so that there wouldn't be problems, so that there would be more or less unanimous consensus. Holy shit, slavery ended 200 years ago, and we finally need to get around to institutionally uh, trying to make amends for it. Uh, now, before I go, I want to just give a quick update on the fundraiser. Things are still going well. I think we're down to about 75 people giving $100 each will get us to our goal. And uh, just to reset... I'm trying to raise money to build a what I hope is a fantastic uh, mobile app that will sort of, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but it might revolutionize progressive new media. Uh, you know, I'm not saying definitely, but maybe. And uh, the whole idea is to try to get more people to be able to find great media without much effort 
and to bring Best of the Left into the modern mobile world. For, for details, visit the fundraising page on the website. You'll see it all written out there. Uh, but in the meantime, I want to thank people who, who have uh, been chipping in recently. Howard from Stillwater, Minnesota, Joseph from Astoria, Oregon, Scott from Roseville, California, Alexander from Montpelier, Vermont, Jim from Boulder, Colorado, Bertha from Long Beach, California, Pauline from Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chris from Hancock, Hancock, New Hampshire, Judy from Ames, Iowa, Justin from Greensboro, North Carolina, Sean from Salt Lake City, Utah, Becky from San Antonio, Texas, Rick from Venice, California, and Laura from East Point. Georgia. Uh, so the donations are still coming in. I think we're still on a good trajectory. I'm keeping in mind that a lot of people wait till sort of the last minute. <laughs> so if, if we have a, a nice like spike towards the end of this campaign, then I think we have a very good chance of, uh, of getting there. But let's keep the, the donations coming in. There are all sorts of great, great uh, prizes. As you've been hearing, people have been guest introducing the show recently because uh, that's one of the prizes for you know making a, a generous donation to this campaign. But also there have been, you know, lots of t-shirts and sweatshirts going out as well as memberships to get all the uh, access to the bonus content that I produce and so on. All the details are on the website. And then the last note on this is that uh, please remember that there are installment plans available. It's built right into the site. So, you know, if you would like to donate, but you don't have like a huge chunk of cash on hand, you can set it up as an installment plan and it still counts towards the fundraiser, but you can pay it off. Uh, over the course of, you know, a few months if you want. So thanks in advance to everyone who, who wants to chip into that. We're, it feels like we're within striking distance of, of making this happen. The campaign ends at the end of the month. So check that out at bestoftheleft.com. Uh, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, obviously, uh, during this month with the fundraiser. Uh, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained